Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. This is our fourth lesson in the book of Philippians. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 12 today, but uh, to get a running start into it, we're just going to read the first 11 verses to remind us what last week's lesson was about. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a wonderful passage. We discussed last week the fact that the theme of this is have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ. He's talking about what mindset we need to have. And to present that idea, he gives a, a, a discussion of how Jesus demonstrated humility. Jesus, who was God, emptied himself and came to earth. And we had a long discussion last week about the nature of Jesus Christ, the fact that he is the uh, second person of the Trinity, so he is fully God. Yet he came to earth and he was fully God and fully man at the same time. And we discussed the fact that there's all kinds of heresies that uh, potentially come out of this. There are those who think that he was just a human being, that he was just kind of filled with the Spirit, but he was just like you and me. And there's others who think that, well, he's just a God. He wasn't really flesh. We saw this in the Gnostics during the time of the early church, who believed that flesh itself was wicked and evil, so obviously God could not take on human flesh. But the Scripture teaches us that he did, and that he emptied himself and became the servant and the point of all of this is that you and I should have that same mind that Christ had. And the passage ends with the fact that God exalted Jesus for what Jesus had done out of obedience. Obedience even to the point of death. It's a marvelous passage that we went over last week. So picking up in verse 12 today, we're going to see another verse that has caused lots of discussion over the years, but I think we can uh, understand it pretty well. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So that phrase at the end is what gives a lot of people difficulty. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
So let's pick up at the beginning and see what he's encouraging them to do. He's encouraging them that they have obeyed him in the past. They have obeyed him because of his apostolic authority, because of his teaching the word of God, and because, well, he started the church at Philippi. So he kind of has this connection, and he's calling upon that to encourage them that even when he's away, they're supposed to do something. So what is that something they're supposed to do? Well, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we have this aversion to the word work when connected with salvation. Because, let's face it, isn't salvation a gift from God? Isn't salvation something that we do not participate in? And the answer is yes, but. Not yes, but, and I'm going to throw in some works that you need to do in order to be saved. But we've had this discussion numerous times, and we're going to repeat it again. We had it when we went through the book of Ephesians, because it's presented so clearly there. We've had it at the beginning of the discussion of Philippians. And we've had it in Romans. We've had it in, well, probably every book that we've studied. If you had the opportunity to go to the um, Worldview Conference that they had at church uh, last weekend, um, you'll remember that during the question and answer period, uh, somebody asked the question about Catholicism and what is the difference between what we believe and what Catholics believe. And one individual gave an answer and then another individual quoted somebody when he said that part of the problem with Catholicism is that it muddles the difference between justification and sanctification. And we cannot muddle that or we're going to misunderstand what this verse is teaching us. So, if you remember, back when we worked through the book of Ephesians, we got to chapter 2, verse 8, and it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Remember, we've covered this dozens and dozens of times. When the scripture talks about salvation... It often talks about different pieces of salvation. So, the first part is what we refer to as justification. This is where God declares us righteous because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, we see this in uh, the book of Romans. He spells this out in depth. What we're seeing in Philippians is just a tiny nugget of what he expands in the book of Romans. So, justification is a declaration by God that we are declared to be righteous because of the finished work. And there is nothing that you contribute to it, and there's nothing that I contribute to it. It is a work of God. So, it says, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. So, you're not going to be saved in such a way that you can go to your friends and brag, you know, yeah, God did a whole lot for me, but I did the most important part. I pushed across the finish line. I did it. Rah, rah, look at me. No, that's not going to happen. Justification, justification being declared right by God is a work of God in the life of the sinner 
becoming a believer, well, we're always a sinner. But the non-believer becoming the believer. So you are justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Back to the Ephesians passage. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. He's doing the work. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are to do good works. What does it say? Which God prepared before that we should walk in them. So we are saved totally apart from works because we are God's workmanship. But we are saved to do good works. We are saved to do those works that God has called us to do. Back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It does not say work to earn your salvation. It says to work it out. God has put it in and we are to work it out in our everyday life. And guess what? We participate in that activity. That activity is known as sanctification. We are justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ and we are sanctified by God working through us to accomplish his purpose and us saying yes. Let's keep going. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. You see, we have another problem that we'd run into sometimes, okay? I am justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we begin to think, and then I have to do the rest of it on my own. I have to just dig in and do the hard work to become a good Christian. So it's like it's grace before and then it's works after. No, that isn't true. It is grace before, it is grace during, and it is grace after. It's all grace, but we are called to participate with that grace. We are told to say yes when God asks us, commands us, instructs us to do something. So, it is God who is working in us. It is God who is initiating all of it. And it says two things, both to will, that is to choose, and to do the work that is done for his good pleasure. So, what is it that we are called to do? Well, let's back up a little bit. I have a child. I have lots of children. I have a child and it brings me pleasure when that child does those things that are good, proper. We'll have a long discussion about this much later in the book of Philippians. So that brings me, the father, pleasure when I see him do what I've asked him to do. In the same way, we bring pleasure to God, and I might add in this passage, we're bringing pleasure, or the church at Philippi is bringing pleasure to Paul 
as the founder of the church, he considers himself as the spiritual father, and he's telling them, work out your salvation. Continue to work out. But remember, even while I'm instructing you to work it out, remember that it is still God who is working in you to accomplish these things. Jesus Christ died that we might be justified. The Holy Spirit indwells us and instructs us and directs us in our sanctification. So even in our sanctification, where we are saying yes or no to the Spirit, even in sanctification, there is no place for us to boast, look at me, see what I've done. And in fact, if you look back into last week's lesson and the whole discussion about humility, the actual fact is as you progress in the Christian life, if you are truly progressing in the Christian life, your humility probably grows because you understand how little you understand. I've used this illustration before where I've talked about you know, I was a math major in my undergraduate degree. And when I was in high school, I thought I was pretty good at math. I really was. You could have said maybe there was a little pride. But then I got into college and it just seemed like the more math I learned, the more math I knew I didn't know. So the pride went away because I understood the scale of what was involved in mathematics, more so in the Christian life. As we move closer to Christ, we begin to understand the depths of our sin, the depths of what God in his grace gave us by sending his son on our behalf. And because of that, our humility should grow. If you're a believer and you are prideful and boastful about what you are doing for God, it should be a warning signal. Humility, humility is necessary because we acknowledge the fact that it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, first observation, what is the purpose of your life? to bring pleasure to God the Father. But it is God who is allowing you to do that. It's like this. Your small child, grandchild, great-grandchild comes to you and says, can I have $5 to buy you a Christmas present? Now you think, well, that doesn't make much sense. It's my $5. But most of us are tickled pink because they're thinking about us. They just don't have the resources to pull it through. God knows that everything we do, we've gotten from him. Yet, he brings him pleasure when we as children rely and depend upon him to accomplish what he wants us to do and to be. Now, back to the comment that was made at the uh, Worldview Conference that Catholics, Roman Catholics, muddle the line between um, 
justification and sanctification. Because you see, they see justification as being done at the end of the process. If I have lived my life, if I have done what I ought to do, then at the end, God will declare me just because I am just. Not because of, well, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Although I might add, let's remember, there are those who think, well, Protestants believe in salvation by grace, Catholics believe in salvation by works. That's not entirely true. Catholics know that you have to have grace. They know that everything you do, they read this verse. They know that you have to have grace. The sacraments are means of grace. They know you can't do it. But the justification does not come until the end. So as I've said before, if you ask a good Catholic, are you saved? Their answer will be, well, I hope so. Because they can't presume until the very end. Because, well, they may commit mortal sin and then they've lost their salvation. So they pray and they hope that they have salvation. We believe that God has declared us to be righteous. We are justified Salvation is by faith from first to last. But God empowers us to live that out in our daily life. And that is what Paul is talking about in verse 12. Work out your salvation. Don't work for your salvation. Simply work it out because it's been put into you. Remember our discussion about from last week about the mind of Christ. He begins by saying, have this mind in you. But then he says, you have it because it's been given to you. Now live like you have it. Live like the spirit is living in you because the spirit is living in you. But let's look at the uh, phrase again. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that's an interesting passage because we have this idea of me going, oh no, I'm not really saved. I've got to work harder to prove it. And I'm scared to death that any moment I'll mess up and God will just strike me from the list. Well, that's not what he's talking about here when he talks about fear and trembling. It's not a fear that you're going to lose your salvation. It's a fear of God, which the Bible repeatedly says is necessary for a correct understanding of our relationship with God. It is an awe that we have before a holy God. It isn't that I'm terrified of losing my salvation. It's just that the more I think about who a holy God, a righteous God really is. I understand how weak I am and I am in awe of his greatness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Repeatedly in the scriptures, we see the necessity of the fear of the Lord. If you begin to think that here's God and here's you and you're kind of, you know, right about there and he's your best buddy, arm in arm, and well, 
you don't have a proper understanding of God. You don't have a proper understanding of God's holiness compared to your innate sinfulness. God's holiness, and we receive the holiness of Christ, and that's the only reason we can possibly be saved. So, we work out our, out our salvation with fear and trembling, which means we take it seriously. You know, it's not just, well, I'll, you know, tiptoe my way through life, not upset anybody, not do anything, just, you know, have my fun and get it over with. No, we are to have an awe toward God that drives us to be what God would have us to be. Now, um, as last week's lesson, we talked about the fact that um, there's all kinds of heresies involved in uh, understanding the Trinity and understanding the nature of Christ. We have problems along these lines from this verse. I mean, there is the idea that we have to work to earn our justification. There are lots of people who really believe that. I have to work in order to be right with God. And that's a heresy. You don't have to work. And I know because I've talked to many people who came from a legalistic background, a background that was uh, totally committed to thou shalt not, 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 and just whatever it is, don't do it. And they get to passages like this and it says work out your salvation and they go oh no I'm back in it and they need to remember but it's God who is working in you to will and to work to do his good pleasure they need to be reminded that it's all by the grace of God that's the solution to the legalistic mindset but the flip side of it is the idea that we don't have to do anything with regard to our sanctification. And that also is a heresy. You know, I'm saved, so I'm going to sit back and just enjoy my life. And guess what? We are called in the Bible to do certain things. We are called to do. We are instructed. You can look at the Old Testament but you don't want to. You can look at the apostles, but you may not want to do that. Just look at the life of Christ. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, what are his commandments? Well, you read the scripture and you find out what he expects from us. And then you see that list and you go, oh no, I can't do that. And God says, of course you can't do it. But if I give you the strength, we can do it. You see, justification is a moment. It is God declaring us to be righteous. Sanctification is a life. It is an entire life. And sometimes you have your ups. Oh, I'm, and sometimes you have your downs. And sometimes you're just in the middle. But remember, you're not doing it. God's doing it through you. So we have the idea that we have to earn our justification, and that's false. We have the idea that we don't do anything 
for our sanctification. And that's false. And the other idea that's false is that we have to do everything for our salvation. You come to my church, I've got this list of 500 things you have to do, and I'm going to check you every week, and I've got this club, and I'm going to beat you over the head if you miss any one of them. No, it's not you. It's not me. It's God working in us to accomplish his good pleasure. So, we are called. Paul is telling the church at Philippi, I started this church. I am the spiritual leader and I am commanding you. I am instructing you. I am pleading with you to continue to work out your salvation. Elsewhere, it talks about pressing on to maturity. That's what I want you to do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Sometimes we kind of stress the I'm working and we need to remember it is God working in us. So, verse 14, do all things without grumbling and disputing. What is grumbling? Well, you know what grumbling is. Go back to mm, the book of Exodus. Moses is leading the nation of Israel out of bondage to the promised land. There are millions of them. And they get out there, and the first thing that happens is they run into the Red Sea. Here is Pharaoh's army behind us, and they start grumbling. Now remember, God has just performed, what was it, 10 plagues. He has done all kinds of things to demonstrate his power and authority. And the moment they hit the first difficulty, what do they start do, doing? They grumble. God works a miracle. He parts the seas. They walk across. The Egyptians come after them and the waters close in on them and they start walking. And guess what? They need water. Don't you think God knows they need water? But what do they do? They grumble. They don't have food. What do they do? They grumble. Don't you think that God knows they need to have food? They get tired of Moses telling them what to do. I mean, why Moses? Why not this person over here? And they grumble about Moses' authority. They grumble. They grumble about everything because they do not trust God and they do not trust God's appointed leader who is Moses, don't you know that God knows they need all these things? What is the opposite of grumbling? Well, we're actually going to see this later in the book of Philippians, where this wonderful verse occurs. I have learned to be content. Whatever the situation, I have learned to be content. The nation of Israel, leaving bondage in Egypt, going to the promised land, was not content. They were not trusting in the provision of God to take care of them. What do we grumble about? Eh, I don't like that song. Eh, I don't like that pastor. Eh, why did they invite that person to speak? Eh, 
I don't like the color of the pews. Eh, I don't like that person sitting next to me. Eh, dot, 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 dot. Because you see, we are still sinners. And if we do not have the mind of Christ, if we are not working at our salvation with fear and trembling, we are going to find something to complain about. Something to complain about within the church itself. I mean, what I think we're talking about here is not me complaining about, you know, the president of the United States or me complaining about the media or me. It's talking about the church grumbling within the church. And Paul is telling them, stop doing that. Stop grumbling and stop disputing. What does it mean to dispute? Argue about things. You know, nah, 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 nah. argue, argue, argue. Well, aren't we, shouldn't we discuss all this stuff? Yes, we should. We should discuss the things of scripture and try to understand it. And if we have a disagreement, we need to talk through it. What's the difference between you and me having the mind of Christ and working through our differences and us disputing? Well, I've got kind of a rule of thumb that I use. Um, if I am more interested in winning the battle than understanding the truth, then I'm just disputing. You've gotten in those conversations before, right? Those conversations where you're talking to somebody about some good Christian topic and all of a sudden you kind of get wrapped up into it and all of a sudden what is most important to you is that you win the argument. And guess what? God doesn't care who wins the argument. What he wants is that we have the mind of Christ, that we become the servants of all. We still are called to defend the truth, but we're doing it for the sake of the truth. Now, I might also add, there's an interesting twist on this. Some of the commentaries will lead you to believe that what Paul is talking about here are disputes that spill over into the secular court. You remember in Corinthians when Paul chastises the church at Corinth that members in the church are taking other members to the civic court to settle their differences. And he goes, what? You are going to judge angels and you can't handle this problem? You have to drag it before the civil authorities to work it out? Don't you know it would be better if you just lost than to drag it in front of the world. More about that in just a moment. Don't do, I mean, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We can just stop right there and just feel like we've uh, got enough to work on for the week. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Wow, that you may be blameless and innocent. Well, there is the sense in which, because we have the righteousness of Christ, we are blameless and innocent. But in another sense, we all know that we have sin in our lives. So what does it mean to be blameless and innocent? Well, let's kind of 
take the middle of this verse and work our way out. Without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, we could have a show of hands, but I can't see you. How many of you think that we live in a crooked and twisted generation? I see all of your hands going up. We live in a crooked and twisted generation. But you guess what? Paul lived in a crooked and twisted generation. Just read what's going on in the church at Corinth. And you can see some of the twisted things that people are doing. So the world out there, let's make this distinction. The world out there is crooked and twisted. What does it mean to be crooked? Well, you know, the Old Testament prophets use the illustration of a plumb line, right? The plumb line is simply a weight connected to a string. And if you want to know if a wall is truly straight up and down, you put the plumb line at the top and I mean the string at the top and gravity is going to make that string straight. And if the wall is crooked, it's because the wall is crooked, not because the string is crooked, because gravity is going to force that to be straight. And the prophets told the people that God is putting the plumb line next to them. And guess what? It is showing that they are crooked. They are not straight. They are not following the law of God. So, out there is the crooked and twisted generation. Inside the church, we are to have the mind of Christ. We are to look out for the needs of others. We are not to look out after our own needs. Now, when we are grumbling and when we are disputing, and when those disputes spill out into the outside world, which is crooked and twisted, the crooked and twisted generation looks at the church and says, guess what? You're just as crooked and twisted as we are. And we're not supposed to be that way. Do not grumble, do not dispute, so that in the eyes of the outside world, you will be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Now, you're not going to be perfect, even though you are called to be perfect through the work of Jesus Christ. But the church should not mirror the problems of the crooked and twisted generation. Rather, the church should stand as what? Among whom you shine as lights in the world. We are to be the beacon that draws the world to Christ. But when we, the church, are all seeking our own interest, when we are not demonstrating the mind of Christ, when we grumble, 
when we dispute, we are not presenting Christ well to the outside world. Now, let's make sure we understand something very clearly. If you are doing exactly what Christ wants you to do, exactly what Christ wants you to do, the world is still going to persecute you. In fact, Christ says that. In fact, Christ is the perfect example. He did exactly what the Father wanted him to do. And the world hated him. And we are told if the world hates the Son, he's going to hate the followers. But, but, the world is hating the things of God. They're not being drawn away or pushed away because of our grumbling with each other. And there's a difference. You see, when ever some pastor is presented in the newspapers as having committed some horrible, usually sexual activity, we should not gloat, well, at least that wasn't my church. No, we should mourn because the church of Christ is being dragged through the mud because of the followers or those who ought to have been following him. So, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. This, of course, reminds us of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Matthew 5, well, if you start in verse 13, it says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Notice what it says. Well, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say you should be salt of the earth. And it doesn't say you should be the light of the world. It says you are the salt, you are the light. But then it talks about the fact that you can be salt that's not doing its job. Or you can be light that is being hidden. But you are the salt and we are the light. Back to Philippians verse 15. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. So there is a crooked and twisted generation. And we're all in agreement that our generation like the generation of Paul, is a crooked and twisted generation. It is a crooked and twisted generation, and you and I are called to be lights in this crooked and twisted generation. And in order to do that, we cannot be crooked and twisted just like the world in which we live. We have to be different. And how do we do 
that? Well, we could go back to the start of chapter 2. What does it say? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more than than more significant than yourself. Let each of you look out not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this mind in you that was in Christ, who became the servant of all, who was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Acknowledge the fact that it's God working in you. Don't grumble. Don't dispute. Don't complain. All of these are connected into how we become the light of the world. There's something going on in the church at Philippi. We're not entirely sure what it is, but we do have some pretty good hints. You know, uh, later in the book, there's some dispute between a couple of women. But there's this idea that there are people in the church who are doing it for their own selfish ambitions. In chapter 1, we talked about people who were actually sharing the gospel from selfish ambitions. In chapter 2, we start with this idea, don't do anything from selfish ambitions. Something's going on, but guess what? Something is always going on if we are not putting on the mind of Christ. This isn't easy stuff. This is stuff that is counter to the way the world works today. I mean, how many commercials have you seen? Look out for number one. You deserve this. You deserve the best. You need to grab it. You need to. You you, you. And guess what? That is the crooked and twisted generation speaking. We, as the church, are called to be lights in the midst of that world. We are the light of the world. So, verse 16 holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Um, remember a while ago I commented about doing things for God's pleasure? And Paul throughout this book is talking about the pleasure that he receives from seeing the church at Philippi do what God would have them to do. And he's encouraging them. He's admonishing them to continue doing what they know they ought to be doing, whether he's there or he's not there, so that he, at the end of the day, will know, ah, they did well. My labor, my running was not in vain. It wasn't worthless. I did what God wanted me to do. By showing you what God wants you to do. I like this passage, this phrase here, holding fast to the word of life. What is the word of life? Well, I'll just say it's the word of God. 
What is the word of God? Well, it's what we have written down in the Bible. The word of God is given to us. It is given to us to instruct us how to live our life, to correct us when we veer off the path. It is there for our advantage. And what does he say? Holding fast to the word of life. Why do you hold fast to something? Hold fast to it like your life depends upon it. Why? Because your life depends upon it. I mean, let's look at it this way. You're on the cruise ship in the Caribbean. This is not Titanic time, okay? You're on the cruise ship and the cruise ship sinks. And there you are with the little inner tube thing, you know, the little donut. And it's sitting there and it's keeping you afloat. What do you do? You hold fast to that because that is what is keeping you afloat. You know that your life depends upon holding on to that until help can arrive. Guess what? That's how God, that's how Paul wants you and me to treat the word of God. Here's my question. In my house, I've got dozens of Bibles. Dozens of Bibles. Do I hold fast to them? Or is it just kind of up there on the shelf and, oh, I'll pull that one off because I've got to work on a lesson. I'll pull that one off because I need a verse to use for something. Or do I pour through it going, this is necessary for my life until God returns or God takes me home. Holding fast to the word of life. That is, those are the instructions that God is giving us so that in the day of Christ, Paul talking to the church at Philippi, this is a very personal letter, Paul talking to the church at Philippi, will know that he didn't labor in vain. So, what do we get from all of this? We get that we are supposed to be doing something. Not to earn our salvation. You cannot earn your salvation. Just can't happen. But when God saves you, God gives you what is necessary to do the will of God. And you can say yes, or you can say no. But we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to hold fast to the word of life. And we're not to sit around like the Israelites, grumbling because we're not getting our way. When we grumble, when we're just arguing for the sake of arguing, the world looks at us and says, yep, you're no better than we are. We are called to be the light. And to be the light, we've got to be different.
and not just different in an obnoxious way, but different as we strive to be what God has declared us to be. I will see you next week and we'll pick it up right here.